Will you join me in the reading of scripture today? It comes from Luke chapter 16. If you've grown up in a church, it may be a pretty well-known passage, um, but we ask that you read with me together. I'm going to start with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And this is God's word. This is a chilling passage. You know, we we started a new series a few weeks ago on the core values of Metro. And we're going to spend, we're kind of parking a little bit, and we're going to spend some time marinating on what we call the centrality of the gospel. Because without understanding the centrality of the gospel... These core values that we are touting, promoting, have no direction. They have no power. What is the gospel? Who is Jesus Christ? Now, this passage is a parable. And what is a parable? A parable is a story that contains a series of ironic twists. Those twists are intended to shock the listener in those days, to shock the listener with truths that are just as applicable today as it was to the listener when they they first heard the parable. And from this parable, we're going to learn three things. One, why Lazarus went to heaven. Two, why the rich man was in hell. And thirdly, how we can learn from both of their experiences. Why, why Lazarus is in heaven. Two, why the rich man's in hell. And lastly then, how can we learn and respond to this? Now, first, let's talk about why Lazarus is in heaven. Verses 19 to 22 is the beginning of this parable. And we're introduced to two characters. And two characters are virtually opposite of each other. One of them is rich, the other is poor. One of them is in royalty and in luxury, the other is a beggar. One is covered in and adorned with linens, the other adorned in sores. One is feasting while the other is longing just to eat the crumbs from his table. That's what Jesus says. Now, this rich man, he gets a funeral. He he is he is buried, it says. Um, the poor man, there's no reference. There was no reference to any funeral or burial. He most likely just died in the street. And yet, those aren't the main contrasts. The main point of contrast between these two men 
is not that one goes to heaven and the other is in hell. We see this in verse 20. The real difference is one of them has a name. This is remarkable. It's remarkable because there are at least 55 parables, depending on how you count. There are about 55 parables in the Gospels. And at least 31 of them are absolutely unique. But in every single one of those parables, the main subject never has a name. For example, if you take the parable of the prodigal son, you have a father, you have an elder son, you have a younger son. That's pretty much how the subjects are titled in these parables. None of them have a name, but only in this parable, of all the 55 or so parables in the Gospels, it's the poor man that has a name. His name is Lazarus. Lazarus means God is my help. God is my helper. God is my savior. In other words, Lazarus means God is all I've got. In verse 25, from heaven, Abraham, he says to the rich man, and this rich man, he's in agony, he's in torment, it says, in your lifetime, you received your good things. In other words, you've invested heavily on the things that were very important to you. You invested heavily in your worldly comforts, in your luxury, and you wasted your life. That is your help. Your help was those things. Lazarus is poor. Lazarus is naked. He's hungry. And he's forgotten. Completely just marginalized. But he's given a name. Because Jesus Christ is saying, God was his only help. God was all the sum of his worth. He didn't have a 401k. God was the only thing that he invested in, his relationship with God. It was all that he had, and it was all that he needed. The rich man, what are your good things? What are the good, man, good things of this rich man? He defined himself by his wealth, by his luxury, all that he had, and all, it was all he had, and it was all he needed. And so he never saw a need for God's help because he didn't need any help. So he didn't know God because he didn't need God, and so he had no name, and he wasn't known. In other words, when you make your riches your identity, the Bible says nothing against being wealthy. You need to understand that. But when you make wealth your identity, or anything for that matter, apart from your relationship with God, from your relationship with Jesus, that's all you become. You don't really have an identity. You're just a rich man. You're just a good-looking person. You're just an intelligent person. You're just a skillful person. And when you take away those things, what are you? Because when we go beyond the blue and we all pass away, what are we apart from those things? You are just an empty soul because those things have become the sum of your worth and they get buried with you. What are you investing in? What are you investing in? And when you take away those things, you're just that empty soul. Those things are your help. Those things are your functional gods. And how do you know when you've invested in functional gods that are apart from God himself? It's because when you lose them, you feel empty. When you lose them, you feel like you're in hell. When you lose them, you are in agony, you are in torment. Like the rich man in this narrative, he says he is in agony, he is in torment. And, and what, what he's doing is he's experiencing what he says, he calls it a, a soulful thirst. It's not just a thirst for comfort because he lost all that. It's a thirst for the comfort of a name, being known by God. What is a name? To have a name, to have an identity is to know who you are. 
Because when you know who you are, you know your worth. You know your value. You know your direction. And this text says that if God is the source of your identity, if you build your life, if you invest heavily on your relationship with God as the foundation of your life, all your decision making, all your purchases, it's got to be practical. It can't just be an in here thing. It can't just be an in here thing. It's got to be something that manifests outwardly. That's how you know, because it shapes you. If you have that, if you've invested heavily on your relationship with God as the foundation of your life, this text says that you may experience loss still, but you will still have a you. You will still have a self. You will still have an identity. Your circumstances may affect you. Your circumstances may influence you, but they will never define you nor determine who you are because you have a you still. They won't define your value. They won't define your meaning, your purpose, or your direction. Lazarus is a great example of this. Because what did he have? He had nothing. He had absolutely nothing. He had sores. He barely had crumbs. He had sores. The only thing that he had was a name. He had an identity. He had a relationship with God. And he he defined himself as, I've been helped by God. God is my savior. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't have family. He doesn't have wealth. There's no, there's no popularity contest where he's involved. There are no parties thrown for him, no celebrations. There's no funeral, no burial because he's got no wealth, no trajectory, no career path, no title. He doesn't even have food. It says that he is hungry. He went to death. He went through death. Death is the most drastic change you could ever experience. But through that death and weakness and poverty birthed him was birthed a new self. The rich man, notice, he went through the most drastic change. But the text says that he was birthed without, he was birthed without uh, an identity. It doesn't say, the text says very little to nothing about his moral character. You can glean certain things, but not really. The text says nothing about his religious character. You don't know if he's a good person. You don't know if he's a bad person. You just know that he didn't have a personal relationship with God. He wasn't personally known by God. He's just this empty soul covered with things that earned him a wealthy life. What does this tell you about the gospel? Christianity is not about how well you obey. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how bad you are. It's more about who or what you look to apart from God to increase your options, potential, freedom, and joy. And that is a daily thing. That is a daily thing. That is your identity. The thing that you says, this is what's going to increase my options and potential and freedom and joy. You can say, you can confess or profess that you believe in the Lord. You can profess yourself to be a Christian. But if you invest heavily on something else to increase your options and potential and freedom and joy, and that thing consumes your mind and your soul, then that thing is your identity. The gospel is about what is your identity? What is your foundation? So to get the gospel is to have an identity. What sent Lazarus to heaven was not his poverty. It's not because he was just a weak person. It's not because he was just a poor person. Lazarus became even greater after death. Because God was the source of his identity. And that, God, God was the source of his options, his potential, 
his freedom and joy. So from a worldly standpoint, he had no value. And yet from a heavenly standpoint, he had incredible options and potential and freedom and joy. So when eternity overtook him, the fullness of his identity in the Lord, it burst him into heaven, regardless of his status, regardless of his poverty on earth. The rich man, when eternity overtook him, the extent of his emptiness, the extent of his, his uh, lacking, exploded him into a soulful bankruptcy. And so he lost everything, including his name. That's why Lazarus is in heaven. Now, the second point is, well, then why is a rich man in hell? In verse 23, the rich man's in hell. He's in torment. He's in agony. The rich man looks up. Now, there's some of you out there that believe in hell. There are others that may not believe in hell. But the passage says, hell is real. And it says two remarkable, thing, remarkable things about hell. One, it says that hell is a fire. Very often, fire is used to describe hell. But when, because why? When something is in flames, when something burns up, what happens to it? It starts to degrade. It doesn't cease to exist. It's still there. It's just ash. It just degrades into its base component. Fire has a way of breaking things down to a degree that the bonds that held these things together break apart so that where there was once integration, there is now disintegration. It falls apart. The Bible teaches us that that's what sin does in our lives. Slowly but surely, corroding and disintegrating your entire person. You may be disintegrating parts of your body, your health, your emotions, your psychology, your soul. Now think about this. No matter how much you distance yourself from God right now, there are people, I mean, we actively rebel every day. We actively run from God and hide from God every day. We are actively escaping God every day. But you will never completely ever be apart from God or away from God because God is always present. It's part of his common grace. He's always present. And so we are always in one way or another, whether you believe God or not, you are a part of that grace, even if you don't believe in him. And so you're always somewhat intact. You're decaying, you're corroding, but you're intact because as long as you are alive, your body and your soul are still together. They are one, they are integrated. So you're still able to love, you're able to think, you're able to create, you're able to enjoy things. But the Bible says that someday, if you continue to be distant from God, if you continue to rebel, if you continue to run and hide and escape, one day you will manage to completely get away from him. Hell is a place, after you're dead, where people who wanted to get as far away from God as possible are actually successful. They actually get away. That breakdown that you began in your life finally becomes complete. The disintegrating work that you began here because of our sinfulness, because of your sin and through sin, it finally becomes birthed and full term. Now think about this. You go to a doctor. You get a physical. You get some blood drawn. The doctor calls you back in and the doctor says, look, you're a desperate case right now. You need to stop eating certain things. You need to stop eating this and that. You need to stop doing this or that. You need to stop drinking this or that. 
you need to exercise more because if you don't do these things consistently, your life is going to be a disaster. You're barely alive. You don't realize that. But I've seen what's on the inside and it is going to be a disaster. One day, it's going to stop. What do you say in response? Do you say, look, who are you to tell me what to do with my body? Who are you to tell me how to live my life? No, you would never say that. You would never say that. Why not? Because you know that if you violate those recommendations, that disintegration that you began through the way that you live your life, the way that you wanted to live will eventually come full term and you will die. Now listen, the more self-centered you are, the more proud you are, the more rebellious you are, the more unteachable you are, the more unwilling to hear, to admit certain things that everybody else around you already sees and knows, your life will start to break down. And that disintegration is already happening. It's going to get harder to trust people. It's going to get harder to love people. It's going to get harder to think for other people. And after a while, everything starts to revolve around you. And everything starts to revolve around how you can continue to weave in and out of sin. And to get away with things so that you can have the things that you treasure. Think about what self-righteousness does. There are years and years of just growing up and living the right way. Because you know that if you do that, you've learned that there are certain advantages that come with that. And when you're in the habit of just doing everything right and you're praised and you're lauded to do that, you don't even realize that, hey, I can get by. I can get lots of stuff. There's lots of benefits of that. But then one day someone sits you down and calls you out. What do you do? We don't handle that well. You get defensive. You make excuses. You blame other people. You withdraw from people. You attack the very person that calls you out. That is a seedling of hell that will grow into an oak tree of hell once you're dead. It's the beginning of the breakdown. Why? Because what's hell? Hell is a place where your self-centeredness, your selfishness, and your pride just continues to just run uncontrollably like a wildfire. The rich man says, I'm in agony. I'm in torment. I'm thirsty. I'm burning up here. Like, it's not that there's a physical fire in his life. He is completely consumed by who he is. Now, a lot of times we're blind to those things right now. But there are people in your life that already see it. And they are called to address that in you. And you are called to hear that from them. Because if you don't, in time, that self-centeredness will become a tomb. That self-righteousness will become a morgue. That selfishness will be your burial. You'll be trapped in that. There are three things that the rich man says here that are really, really important. One, verse 24, the rich man, he speaks to Abraham and he says this. He says, send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and to cool my tongue because I'm in agony. What he's saying is, I'm falling apart. I'm disintegrating. Notice, he's not even speaking to God because he's so proud. This is a job for a servant, and he's in charge, right? He's a good man. He's in charge. He's accomplished things. He's always used to being, to calling the shots. That's the rich man's view of Abraham. 
That's audacious. It's the rich man's view of Lazarus. Why? Because the rich man is always used to being on top. Lazarus is always used to being on the bottom. And so he still thinks he's on top. And when he's on top, what does he do? He's barking orders, commanding people. He has, he's, I have authority. I have rights. He doesn't realize that there has been a reversal in his life. A great reversal. And yet the rich man, he doesn't get it. He doesn't see that. And so he's still ordering Abraham and Lazarus as if he's still on top. He's blind to his need because he's gripped by his earthly power still. He's gripped by his wealth and his status. There are people here right now, you know, you think you could do whatever you want because right now people may not see it. Right now you can still squirm your way around things. It's just the way you figure things out in life. Time is running out. There is limited time. And that reversal is coming. Two, the rich man says in verse 27, send Lazarus to warn my brothers. In other words, I have proper, I have brothers. They need to be warned. What's he implying here? I didn't get a proper warning. He's still blaming other people. He's still blaming God. He's still making excuses. He's still justifying himself. Still making a case for himself. You know, we spend so much energy investing in making a case for ourselves, in our families, in our workplaces, through our arguments, through our defensiveness. And we never truly get to addressing the thing that's actually causing the disintegration. We need help. Three. The rich man asks Lazarus to come to him, to comfort him. But he never asks for forgiveness. He never asks for help. He's so blind, he never sees the real problem, his sin. And so he never sees the real solution. He just wants comfort. He just wants the luxury. He just wants the relief. And this tells you something about hell. Hell is nothing more than what you naturally are pursuing right now. You choose it. And that teaches us two things about hell. One, look at your pride and jealousy. Look at things like jealousy and envy. If you see somebody and you know that they are in sin, they are broken and they are in sin. I know this is very, very uh, characteristic of our culture. We just assume that we're going to outgrow it. We just assume if we leave them alone and just have a good time, maturity, emotional, psychological maturity, they'll eventually just mature out of this stuff. And so what we do is we don't want to rock the boat. We just want, we just kind of sweep these kind of things under the rug. This stuff will come back like a forest fire. And you can't control it at some point. You never naturally get better. Over the years, these things will get worse until C.S. Lewis, as he says, it's going to burst you into eternity where you become exactly what you envision hell to be. In other words, hell begins with irritation and annoyance, uh, gossip. It might extend into gossip, grumbling, but eventually you can't stop. You're always going to grumble. You're always going to be jealous. You're always going to be proud. You're always going to make excuses and blame other people. Sometimes you're going to blame yourself. That's called self-pity. You're going to beat yourself up. C.S. Lewis says, eventually... You just become the grumble. And that's what hell is. This is why hell is a fire. 
because we're so consumed by it, we just become it. And you can see that through the disintegration that's taking place in your life today. If there's, if your life, if there's a facet or dimension of your life that's falling apart, if there's a facet or dimension of your life that's disintegrating, you need to stop and do business with God. You need to stop and hear other people. You need to stop and listen to God's word. Because if it's moving you and shaping you right now, it's got to be something that penetrates so deep that it starts to uproot the weeds that are actually corroding the whole garden of your heart. The second thing we learn about hell is that hell is isolation. In verse 24, the rich man's in agony. He's begging for relief. He sees Abraham. He sees Lazarus. And Abraham says, in, in verse 25, he says, I can't help you. Why? There's this chasm. It's too distant. It's too far. The more self-centered you become, the more self-righteous, self-absorbed, self-pitying, blaming you get, you become. Eventually, there's no one that's going to be left around. You're going to lose everyone around you, and you will be alone. This rich man, he is alone. There's no one there. There is no help. There's no more relief. Time has run out for him. That's what hell is. We, I used to think growing up that you'd be, you're thrown into hell. God kind of throws you into this furnace, locks the door, and then, and, 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 you know, changes the combination and throws the key away. That's what I used to think happens. We're not thrown into hell. We choose it. We choose it, and every day, incrementally, that choice is being more and more made because it's disintegrating our souls. No one asks in hell, get me out of here. No one asks for that. No one's even trying to get out because they chose it. Lazarus on earth, there were no options no potential, no freedom. And then he dies. But through that brokenness, through that death, because he was known by God, he saw the ultimate options, ultimate freedom, ultimate potential, and so the ultimate joy in his life. How do we, how do we receive that? How do we get that? The rich man says in verse 27, I know what it takes to avoid this. Send Lazarus, because if Lazarus shows up, they're going to get it. They'll get it. And in verses 29 to 31, Abraham says, that's not going to work. You know why it doesn't work? Because if you live life, basically what the rich man is saying is if, this, if Lazarus shows up, it'll be like a ghost. It'll scare them. And they will repent. And Abraham says, that will never work because if you live life using fear or guilt to shape somebody, that change may happen briefly, but it will not last. The rich man says, but if someone comes from the dead, essentially, they're going to get it. But Jesus says, not even if somebody rises from the dead. That Greek word, rises, or rising, is always in reference to Jesus himself and the resurrection. You always see, whenever you see that word, it's always in reference to Jesus talking about himself and the resurrection. Which means Jesus is now saying, even if I rise from the dead, even if you see my hands and my feet, it will not work. It may scare you. You will not change because you have to know why I rose. You have to know why I died, why I rose again in order to experience that life-changing grace that gives you the power to change forever. Only the love of God can change your identity. Why do we build our identity on our wealth, on our work, on our families, on our relationships, It's because deep inside we know that there has to be something outside of ourselves telling us that you are acceptable, that you are beautiful, that you are provable, that you are okay. We need their love. We need their approval to justify us. 
to justify us. And that's why we work so hard to craft our story, to make our case, so that we can feel justified. Oh, and we, when we don't feel like we've made a case, we, we squirm our way around. We will lie, we will cheat, we will reject and withdraw, we will find other communities, as long as we are accepted. That's what we do. We're looking for a name. We're placing the eternal weight of the blessings of these things. These blessings that have been given to us by God. And yet we've made them the source and the foundation of our worth. Your willpower, your fear, guilt, they will beat you up and hammer you. But you will never truly change. Because you need a greater truth, a greater reality that will, that's greater than your skills, your ability, and it's also greater than your fears so that you will be shaped and melted into change. Only the love of God can rescue you from your self-centeredness, from your self-absorption, your selfishness, your pride, to turn against yourself to literally battle yourself and turn toward God and other people. Only, the, only a righteousness that's outside of you, that comes from God, can save your soul so that your soul can crescendo into eternity without the disintegration and the isolation that this rich man is experiencing. What Jesus is saying here, you need my love. You need my grace. You want to know my love? then you you need to know what I did for you. And that's why he says, they have Moses and the prophets. Because what do Moses and the prophets say? The prophets will tell you what Jesus is going to do on the cross. And what the prophets had, had looked ahead to, to tell you what Jesus would do, we now see, looking back in full, that Jesus Christ took on all of our hells. On the cross, what do you see? You see, Jesus experiencing the disintegrating power of God's wrath, pelting him and disintegrating him. And he's crying out for relief. And he says what? I am thirsty. Why? Because he's getting the fire. He's getting the fire. He's getting the consuming wrath of the fire of God as a penalty for our sins. And so his body is now being, he's falling apart. His body is now disintegrating. And it's not just his body that's disintegrating. There on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because what he's saying is, now my soul is disintegrating. The Father has left me. I'm experiencing now the ultimate isolation, the ultimate separation from God. Because what is hell? Hell ultimately is complete separation from God. God being absent from our lives. And that's what Jesus is experiencing for his people. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though, you, though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. You know what that means? What is the gospel? Jesus Christ is the ultimate rich man, and he's a good rich man. He's a heavenly rich man, but he gave up his wealth. He gave up his status. He gave up his title. He was born in a manger as a baby, and he became the ultimate Lazarus. He became like the ultimate Lazarus, who was poor and hungry and homeless, and no one cared. And he was thirsting. And he recites Psalm 22 on the cross, which is a psalm that really characterizes and describes Jesus Christ on the cross. And he says, my tears have been my food. The dogs have encircled me. And he
and he lost his name. Jesus Christ on the cross says, God, who is the center of my life, on whom I built my entire, I've invested heavily, eternally in the Father. I've placed my identity in him, and now he has rejected me, and so I've lost everything. I've lost my identity. Why? So that you and I can have his identity. Jesus Christ chose hell for you and for me. Look at the beauty of a broken Jesus. Look at the beauty, the, po- the beauty of a poverty-stricken Jesus. The love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the endurance of Jesus for us, for his people. Unless you know the depths of his suffering, you will have no idea what you are worth. You have to believe that truth, and that truth will justify you. That is that alien righteousness that we are looking for because Jesus Christ on the cross is saying, you had to be worth it for me to go through all of this. I went through hell, through a million hells for you. There is the validation, the righteousness on the outside that we so desperately want that says you are beautiful, you are valuable, you have direction, and now you have power. Because you are justified in Christ. Trust in Jesus. Trust in his person. Trust in his work. And you will be more than saved. You will have ultimate options and potential and freedom and joy. Let's pray.